0: Well, good morning and welcome. We're going to be continuing to look at our series this morning at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Uh, two weeks ago, David looked at the first half of the Beatitudes in which we kind of discovered the, the way into the good life, right? That the way into the good life is often it's a downward journey, a downward journey into uh, owning and recognizing and seeing our spiritual poverty, the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table. We come empty-handed uh, when it comes to our righteousness. And, uh, and then it turns into this, this pattern that we begin to mourn our sin. We grieve the way that we have sinned against God, our creator, but also against others and ourselves. And we, we begin to own that. And, it, and as David said, it becomes personal to us. Well, then from there, we we realize that we we develop this meekness, this gentle spirit, right, so to speak, and and we become this soft place to learn because we've understood grace, we've understood mercy, we understand what it means to be in need, right, to be in want, and so we become this place. And so we finally, we come to this place, which is kind of the climax of the Beatitudes, uh, where we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, Right? We hunger and thirst for something that we don't possess. The reason why we hunger and thirst is because we recognize we don't have it right? and that we need it from somewhere else. And so in doing so, we encounter the righteous one. Right? Well, if the first half of the Beatitudes is the way into the good life, well, then the second half, I would say, is the way of the good life. Okay? With that in mind, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let's pray, Father. Would you reveal us, uh, reveal to us your Son? May we see him clearly. May we see his, his mercy, his grace, and uh, and may he become attractive to us in so many ways. And may we see him as beautiful through this text. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. When I was working in Georgia uh, as a youth pastor, one of the trips we would take during the summer was a, a mission trip where we would go to Aca- Acapulco, Mexico. And we'd go to an orphanage there where we would spend our time as an eight-day trip. We had two days of travel, five days in which we kind of did. We split our time between construction work and building projects and then relational time with the kids, playing with them, just investing with them. Older, younger kids and older kids, and um, and we would spend some time with them, and then we had, on the sixth day that we were there, we had a day off, right, and I remember the first time I went on this trip, it was very, uh, it was it was, a, it was a pleasant surprise, to say the least, to know that we didn't have a day off, and, you know, I was thinking we were on a mission trip, we were going to go hard for five days, and, and that was, and that was it, or six days, and without a break, and that was it, but, uh, and on this day off, you know, we, it began off with a, with a ordinary breakfast, and we went from there. We actually had a tradition where we would rent a turf soccer field, and we would challenge the older teenagers in a soccer match, and they would obliterate us, and then we would go uh, from there, and with them, we would go eat, gorge ourselves in tacos at a local restaurant, and then from there, we would split off, And uh, we would have the rest of the day to ourselves, where we would go to a resort, right, and this is Acapulco, it's a beautiful coastal town, and we were at this private resort, uh, at this private beach, and this private pool, and we took over that, and uh, we're having a good old time, and then we would go... Uh, from there back to the to the orphanage where we would just rest from our resting and then uh, from there We would cap it all off with this beautiful dinner at this restaurant that we practically rented out and we that was on the bay and you could see the beautiful ocean out there and it was just this wonderful experience and then we would go watch these um, cliff divers. Uh, there's like this tradition, ancient tradition, where these cliff divers would jump off this massive cliff into the water, and, it, and they would time the current just perfectly, and it was remarkable to watch. Well, the, one of the last times I went on this trip, this, uh, the order of the days got swapped. Uh, we Instead of five days of construction and relationship building and a day off, it was the day off at the very beginning and then five days of that. And I remember sitting in the pool uh, at this resort where we had gone before and thinking to myself, hell, how strange it felt. It just felt awkward. Like It felt strange. I hadn't done anything. We hadn't done any work. Last time I checked, we were on a mission trip, uh, and I wasn't here to, to lounge at a resort. Um, and yet, that's what we were doing on the first day, and it felt so strange, and it hit me. I think often this is the tension we feel with the gospel, right? So often I think one of our one of the things, our tendencies that we try to do when we come to the Beatitudes or a text like the Beatitudes is we try to turn it into a ladder, right? We turn it into this ladder in which we ascend to get to God, right? It's this check, we check all the boxes, uh, check off being merciful, check off being pure in spirit, check off being... Um, uh, all these different things, right? And we check them all off the list, right? As if that this is going to get us to God somehow, like somehow we we're going to prove ourselves to God by working up this ladder. In reality, what we see is that the, the Beatitudes show us a very different way and a very different thing. And uh, in fact, what we quickly see is that uh, it begins with need, right? It begins with recognizing that we actually come to the table with nothing, we have no righteousness of our own. We come poor, empty-handed, and we come and we recognize that. And then when that happens, we, we then begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we encounter the righteous one. And when we encounter the righteous one, we encounter his mercy and his purity and his peace. And this is what happens. And so really, it's this byproduct of grace We're responding to a righteousness that has been received, right? By taking this downward journey, and then we live out of that. And so the beatitudes are what the Holy Spirit does to us and in us through uh, as we encounter the grace of God. What does it produce in us? Well, we see in verse seven uh, when we encounter uh, God's favor, we we delight in giving mercy. Verse seven tells us it says, "Blessed are the merciful." For they shall receive mercy. When we see that we are spiritually poor, when we see that we're spiritually bankrupt, it changes how we look on others. It changes uh, how we perceive them. When we see ourselves as people who receive mercy, we give mercy. Yet this isn't often how we live. We're so much more prone, right, to drop the hammer uh, when we can, right? We, you know, we come in, we sit in the church service, and we hear, blessed are the merciful, and we go, amen. Amen right? And then we leave, we pull out of the church parking lot, and we pull into the left lane on midway here, and we get behind an elderly driver, and we're like, what in the world? Are we just giving away driver's license to 99-year-olds now? Like, right, And we're frustrated, and we're upset, right? We're bringing the hammer down, you know? And then maybe we get back home, and uh, we, we walk, we turn on our favorite sports team, and we're watching, watching that, and the ref just blows a call, right? And we're like, come on! My uncle, my blind uncle could have made a better call than that, right? And we get upset. We just, we're so quick to drop the hammer, right? We love to receive mercy, but we struggle to give it, don't we? When we understand our spiritual poverty and when we encounter God's undeserved favor, it changes how we view others. I love how pastor and theologian Martin Lord Jones puts it. He says this, If all that is true of me, right, that I've received grace and mercy, if all this is true of me, I no longer see men as I used to see them. I see them now with a Christian eye. I see them as the dupes, as the victims, as the slaves of sin and Satan in the way of the world. I've come to see them not simply as men whom I dislike, but as men to be pitied. I have come to see them as being governed by the God of this world, namely Satan, as being still where I was and would yet but for the grace of God be. Right? That's amazing, right? Mercy begins with pity, but it never stops there. It always moves past this feeling of compassion in our hearts, right? And we see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke's gospel, chapter 10. Jesus tells a parable many of you are familiar with of a man who is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, assuming to go worship. And as he's there on this pilgrimage, he is jumped, he is beaten, and he is robbed, and he is left for dead. And then we're told of three other men. We're told of a a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. The first two, the first two that you would expect who would actually do something, stop and help, the priest and the Levite, don't. The man, the third man, the Samaritan, the one he least expects, Expected one who despised Jews, and Jews despised him because he was a Samaritan, is the one who shockingly stops, right? And we're told in the passage that he had compassion on the man who fell among the robbers. He had compassion. He had pity on him. And then he, did, he moved beyond the pity, right? He, he bound his wounds. He put him up in an inn where he could rest and recover. He, he did all of this out of his own pocket. Right, this to be merciful is to move beyond compassion into action. Right? It's to to see the poor, the helpless, the sick, the needy, to have our feelings stirred with compassion and pity, and then to act on it by extending relief or help. Jesus exemplifies this uh, in, in the gospel. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he said, Father. Forgive them. Who's them? The people who are crucifying him, the people who are mocking him and reviling him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looked at the very people who were crucifying him with pity, right? In his darkest hour, he saw his enemies, and he had compassion on them, and he did something about it. He gave his life for them. Right? This beatitude serves as a picture of Jesus, it also serves as a call to his disciples. Stephen, very similarly, as he's being stoned to death, giving his very life for the gospel and for the sake of his enemies, he cried out to God in like fashion, like Jesus. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You see, mercy, friends, received becomes mercy given. It is the way of Jesus, and this should be the way of of his disciples. What else does the Holy Spirit produce in us? When we've made that downward journey, when we have received righteousness by grace alone, through faith, what else is produced in us? Well, the second thing that is produced is, we're told, a pure heart. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, there's a, uh, if you notice, you look at the the Beatitudes, and you study them at all, you actually see that there's actually a connection between the first half and the second half, with the, the middle, the peak being those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the connection, there's a connection between the poor in spirit and the merciful, right? It's naturally someone who's poor in spirit, right, who's received mercy, right, the natural result and connection is that they're going to give mercy. Well, likewise, uh, one who mourns and grieves their sin is also going to long to pursue. Holiness and purity of heart, right? That's, there's this natural connection between the two uh, in that ways. So when we grieve our sin and we experience contrition of our heart over it, the natural next step is to pursue purity. Well, what is purity of heart? Well, the Bible uh, helps us to see it in at least two different ways. Uh, the first way is simply is just being clean. To be pure in heart means to be clean in heart. It means to have an inward uh, moral purity about you. Right? Jesus spoke of this later on in, in Matthew's gospel, in t- chapter 23, when he rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees right, for, for being so concerned about their outward appearance, but yet not even thinking about the condition of their heart. Right? He says in very strong words, he says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. For Jesus, purity wasn't just this external moralism. For him, it was this this inward life that matched an outward, ethical, virtuous living, right, life. Secondly, we can understand purity of heart as this single-mindedness. Jesus also talks about this later on in this very same sermon, the Sermon on the Mountain, which he refers to in chapter 6, this— no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or he'll love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A single-minded person is a, is a person of integrity. They have a single mind, a single heart, a single purpose and devotion. They're undivided, right, in so many ways. What you see is what you get. Uh, it's a person who is committed to the first and greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, right? That is, that is what a, a single-minded person is. They're one who lives before an audience of one, before God alone, for his pleasure only. Not for himself, not for the world, but for the Lord in integrity to him. And so a disciple should be morally and inwardly clean and single-minded. If I were to end the sermon right now, and ask you, how's that going for you? I would imagine if you're like me, not very well, right? You'd be very discouraged. Well, this, there's a reason why there's this natural progression in the Beatitudes. There's a reason why we begin with need, right? There's a reason why we begin with need, and then we then come to a place where we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then we see the righteous one. and then, Because when we experience the righteous one, we experience also his mercy and his purity, Right? We experience his mercy in that our sins are forgiven. He, as the atoning sacrifice, he atones for our sins, but in him, our hearts are also declared pure, right? But here's the question. We, it, it, you know, it begs the question for us, you know, our experience doesn't reflect this, but if we've been declared pure and righteous, then why doesn't my experience reflect this? Why do I still feel dirty? Why do I still sin? Why do I still choose I don't choose righteousness. Like, right? why is why is that the case? Well, because right now, you and I, and if we're in Christ, we only have the imputed. We only have imputed purity, not actual purity. For now, Christ has only accomplished righteousness for us, not in us. Right? We have been declared righteous or pure. Right? Same connection. I'm using this saying, but not made pure righteous or pure. See, one day, either when we go to glory to be with Jesus, or when Jesus returns, Jesus will finish what he started. Our justification will become glorification, right? We will be righteous not only on paper, but in actuality. And what a glorious day that will be. This beatitude tells us when that happens, we will see God. That's the promise promises that we will see God on that day because of the righteousness that will be made in us. For now, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, for now we see in a mirror, mirror only dimly, but then face to face, now only in part, but then fully. Until then, we live in light of who God says we are in Christ, who he's declared us to be, righteous before him, holy, pure for him, right? And then we live out of that, and we strive to live with purity of heart, with integrity, with single-mindedness in all that we do, right? In our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, right? In our private and public life, we are to be the same person with equal dignity, right? We aren't to fudge on our taxes. We're to be the same person over here as we are over here, right? There's all these different things. Integrity is important because God calls us righteous, this is what it means to embrace this beatitude, it's to live in light of who God says we are. Thirdly, what does, it, what does the Holy Spirit produce in those who have made this downward descent and receive righteousness? Well, we read in verse 9 this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's a documentary that came out last year entitled, entitled The Pharmacist, uh, and it featured this man named uh, Dan Scheider. Uh, and Dan Scheider, unbeknownst to him, his son had uh, became addicted uh, to drugs, uh, and he was actually killed in a drug deal uh, gone wrong uh, in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. Obviously grieved over his son's death, he also felt a sense of guilt and a sense of responsibility, right? He, he didn't know, he didn't realize his son had had, had fallen into this, into this addiction, and he, he wondered if he could have done something about it. He wondered, Man, if only I'd known, if only I'd seen the signs, if only I'd been more present, maybe I could have done something. And so the documentary traces this journey in which he pursues justice on behalf of his son. And really, this pursuit of justice is actually a pursuit of peace. Right, He's longing just to have some peace of conscience, some peace in his mind, some, just to have a, 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 a non-restless heart, right? a heart that is at rest, right? He longs for that. And so it begins by him uh, almost becoming a private detective and him uh, trying to seek the, the murderer and having him arrested and convicted. That eventually happens years later. And then it eventually goes on to him going back to work as a pharmacist and then he—it becomes into him intervening in all these young uh, people's lives that are coming in. He notices that they're coming in with these prescriptions for large amounts of oxycodone, and he's like, "This is doesn't make sense." And so he's trying to persuade them, like, "You don't need this much," and so forth. And so he goes in that, and then he notices uh, that they're all—all all these prescriptions are coming from the same doctor. And it's coming out of a pill mill. And so then his pursuit of peace start, begins in justice by taking down this pill mill and taking down this doctor. And then eventually it goes to big pharma and so forth. And so it traces this, this journey of this man seeking peace in some way. And, it, and you're struck by the end of the documentary by the fact that he is still, you can just tell he's so grieved. He still has so much pain and no peace at the end of this, this long pursuit. And, he, and here's the point. True, lasting personal peace doesn't come through our own efforts. It comes through the work of Christ. We have personal peace because through Christ we have been provided peace with God. Romans five one is a beautiful verse. It says this: Therefore, since you we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, if you if you look at the Bible and you see how. It describes us pre Christ, like before faith in Christ, uh, and when we're outside of faith in Christ. We were once enemies. It describes us as sons of disobedience, that we were separated from God, that we are strangers, that we are children of wrath. But now, because of Christ, because Christ gave up peace with God, because Christ became a stranger, because Christ took on the displeasure of God and the full wrath of him and was separated from God, now what is true of us is that you are now not enemies of God, but friends of God. Right? You're, you're now, you've now been brought near. Now instead of being uh, children of wrath, you are sons and daughters and children of God. You are now his people, his beloved. It's this remarkable transition that takes place through God's uh, through Christ's sacrifice. When we understand this, when we know that we belong to God and that He belongs to us, something happens. A switch goes off. We're, we're free. When we, are, when we realize the peace that we have with God, and, and therefore with the world and with others, it frees us up to be less focused on ourselves and more focused on others and their peace. Do you see? Uh, and this is what happens. It, it, verse, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this, Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All of this from God. What's all from God? His mercy, His grace, His love, for this reconciliation. Who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, again, the ministry of reconciliation. When we are brought into the family of God, we are also brought into the family business. And the business that our Father is in is in the business of reconciliation. This is what it's to be about. So for some of us, this can mean a number of things. It can mean, one, avoiding conflict that destroys, right? Not stirring up trouble or constantly arguing for the sake of arguing or being difficult for the sake of getting your way or just winning an argument. Uh, for some of us, it means forsaking gossip and slander, right? Our tongue can be so divisive and so destructive. For others of us, this could mean not avoiding conflict that destroys, but entering into conflict, right? Many of us are passive, right? We'll do anything to sweep something under the rug, right, and not deal with it. Because why? Because conflict's messy, and it's difficult. And, and when we experience—but here's the thing. When we experience the peace of God, this is not an option, this is not an option. We are to look for relationships that are in need of repair, and we are to move towards it. For all of us, it means this. It means at least this. It means sharing the gospel. It means sharing the message of reconciliation. Now that our hearts are at rest, our hearts should become restless for others to know that peace. Right? We should long for others to know that peace. Finally, we come to our, our last beatitude in verses 10 through 12 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, And all honestly, this is probably one of the most shocking of the Beatitudes, right? You would expect, right, that the world would actually want more people to have characteristics of the beatitude, to be poor in spirit, to be, to be meek, to be humble, right? To be merciful, to be pure in heart, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'd, you'd expect that that would be desirable, right? But what Jesus shows us here is that, no, it's quite the opposite. Uh, in some ways, it's also not shocking. Jesus tells us that persecution will come, right? He tells us in, in John 15 that a servant is not greater than his master, if they, were, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you." Therefore, we don't have to seek persecution, right? It will find us. Uh, as our culture is growing more and more post-Christian, um, this seems to be becoming more and more of a possibility uh, for us. Soon, persecution won't be something that happens way over there in some distant land, but it'll be something that happens here. In fact, it is. It's already happening. Uh, In in, in a lot of ways, right? But typically, when we think about persecution, I think we think about it in two ways. I think we think about it in capital P persecution, right? We think about the big stuff, right, which is normally how you perceive persecution, like the death threats, maybe the burning of churches, or capital punishment, right, or martyrdom. Those are the kind of the bigger persecution. But it's interesting, when Jesus speaks of persecution here, he leaves room for even the smallest of persecution. Notice he says that he leaves, he says those who revile you who slander and who hate you right notice the, he, he leaves room for the smaller persecution the persecution like fines or family shame or being kicked off a university campus or unjust trials or public mockery or abuse on Facebook right all of these things he leaves room for all of those things right what we see is that persecution can take all kinds of forms it can look all kinds of different ways but Uh, But notice this, when this happens, when we experience persecution, we're, we're not to be discouraged or fearful or angry or insulated, but we are to be encouraged, right? We are to be encouraged. Why? Why are we to be encouraged? We're to be encouraged because in the persecution, we know that we are a disciple of Christ. We are blessed when we are persecuted, because it shows us that it's the mark of a disciple. But notice this, uh, we are not considered to be blessed just because we are persecuted. Jesus has a very specific reason for the persecution in mind. Okay, this is very important. We are considered blessed when we are persecuted, one, for righteousness' sake, in verse 10, and then in verse 11, on account of Jesus. We were first blessed when we were persecuted for righteousness' sake, in verse 10. It's for our allegiance to kingdom values, right? Notice it's not for this. It's not for being a jerk. It, it's not for lack of wisdom. It's, it's not for political beliefs or cultural beliefs, although our kingdom values inform those things. Sometimes I think we can uh, sometimes get it confused. But it's for righteousness' sake. It's for kingdom values. And Jesus will go on in the Sermon on the Mount, and he'll give all kinds of kingdom values, right? And all these different kingdom values in which he talks about this radical view of the tongue, right? We're not, to be, we're not obligated to truth only when it suits us or when it's for our benefit, right? No, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He, he, he has a radical view of hostility. He says, when someone offends you or hurts you, you don't... Don't punch him in the face. He says, turn the other cheek. Right? He has a radical view of enemies. He says, don't hate and despise your enemies, but love them. Right? The way of Jesus is contrary to the way humanity naturally works. As disciples of Christ, we are to be committed to the way of Christ. Even if that means being canceled, being reviled, being hated, being demoted, or rejected... Secondly, we are blessed when we are persecuted for, on account of Jesus, for our allegiance to the King. Uh, two Fridays ago marked the third anniversary of a mass kidnapping in Nigeria that sparked international outrage. On February 12, 2018, Boko Haram fighters attacked a school in Northeast Nigeria uh, and they took over a hundred girls hostage. One month later, only one of them, one of the girls remained captive, 15-year-old Leah Cheribu. Most of the girls who were kidnapped were Muslim, with the exception of Leah. She was a Christian. Her captors demanded her to renounce her faith to gain her freedom, but she refused. Three years later, she still hasn't come home. Leah is one of many who is suffering on account of Jesus. And yet we read in this verse, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. I've wondered, how did uh, Leah's parents feel about that? Did they really think that Leah was blessed? Did they feel blessed? Um, Well, maybe surprisingly, her mom certainly did, despite all the pain and the heartache. Rebecca, uh, Leah's mom, told Open Doors USA this, I am so proud of my Leah because she did not denounce Christ. When she went away to school, I gave her a copy of the Bible so that she could have her personal devotions even when I'm not there. As her mother, I know her to be an obedient daughter, respectful and someone who puts others before herself. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of me. Persecution will come, and when it does, we are told that we are to be encouraged. When you are persecuted for righteousness sake and on account of Jesus, this promise is for you. Yours is the kingdom of God. And so in the Beatitudes, not only do we get a portrait of a disciple, but we get a portrait of Christ. We get a portrait of our Jesus, a portrait of humility, a portrait of His righteousness, of His mercy, of His purity of heart and His peace. But also the extent to which you would go to rescue sinners like you and me it 's in response to all of this that we seek to imitate him and to follow in his footsteps for it 's by grace we have been safe this is this is the wonderful news let 's pray together, Father Lord, we are in awe of you we 're in awe of who you are we are in awe of all that you've accomplished on our behalf we 're in awe of the ways that you loved us even when we didn't love you, uh, in the ways that you took on our sin and you gave us your righteousness, in the way that you have made us sons and daughters of the King. Father, when we are persecuted, may we consider ourselves blessed. When people revile us, may we rejoice and be glad, because in the persecution we can have confidence that we are yours. Lord, we thank you, and we love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.